Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all and share the Word of God with you. This is going to be uh, our last time worshiping here in this space, at least for a little while. And I suppose this will be the last time we worship in this space as it is ever. Uh, For the next month or so, we will be moving to another location temporarily and then having this place be renovated. And once it's completed, we'll come back here. And so a lot of exciting things are going on in our church. I just wanted to thank you all who have been praying for us. And right after this service today, uh, there will be a presentation on exactly what's going to happen next week. So I ask that you all stay Uh, Listen to the presentation on what is going to go on for at least the next four weeks where we will be meeting in Paramus. And then after that, uh, Sam is going to come up and give us a little bit of uh, some instruction on how this Reformation Fall Festival family, the Fs are mixed up, I think, in there. But there is a wonderful event going on for all our families, especially our kids, that's going to happen right after the service. And because we get rained out, we're going to hold it right here in this space here. And so there will be some instruction given. So I do ask for some, of, so for some patience, and we'll give that to you after the service. But it is a great joy for me to share the Word of God with you. And today I want to start a new series, which I want to talk about the biblical view on happiness. Happiness. So there will be at least four. Today we're going to touch on the nature of happiness. Next week we'll touch on the mystery of happiness. The week after, the exercise of happiness. And at the final week, the glory of happiness. And so I want to talk about happiness. If you were with us in our WWE sessions on Wednesday, you had a little primer of uh, what I mean by that. But I will go over a little bit on what I mean by the word happiness and what it means for a Christian to be happy, right? And so, as we begin today's sermon, let us start with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And as we look into your word, as we think deeply and meditate upon it, we pray that you would grant us understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit as we lift up our lives to you in holy adoration and as a living sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 13. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 13. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 923. But today's passage is from Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 13. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I am going to talk about happiness and what that means. And I'm going to go through today's sermon through points, more like uh, progressing chapters. So I'll say this is chapter one or point number one. And so our introduction, I'm going to title, Where Are We? Where are we? So our first point is, where are we? So I believe happiness is a topic that's more important than ever today. So if we go back a little bit, there was disillusionment from the modern era or modernity after World War II. Obviously, some ideas were already there in 1910 and such. But after World War II especially, and at the height of maybe the 1960s. So if you grew up any time after the late 1940s and 50s, you are not in the modern age. You didn't grow up in the modern age which is, I think, 99.9% of you here, you grew up in the postmodern age. And the postmodern age in which you grew up is about fighting the man. No more fascism. We got this. It's all about love. If you resonate with any of these themes, these are postmodern themes. But postmodernism has now led us to where the Gen Zers, most definitely, and a little bit of the millennial generation, is now a part of. They grew up in the post postmodern age. And so you may have heard this term being thrown or bandied about by some thinkers and modern day philosophers. But post postmodernism is a reaction. So if postmodernism was a reaction to modernity, post-postmodernism is a reaction to postmodernism. With what? With other ideas and philosophies that we may be familiar with, but it's a reaction to postmodernism with things like critical theory. Critical theory where you have to question everything. If you grew up thinking, I need to question everything, that is a post-postmodernistic thinking or philosophy. People have come up to me and asked me about everything on stage. It's not, a, it's not a terrible thing that you do, but it does stem from a kind of learning that we have. Why do you wear gloves on Communion Sunday? Why is there a pulpit here? Why do you do? And so you want answers to all these things. And if you don't have answers, what happens? I better get rid of it. And so there's this kind of thinking, which is a post-postmodernistic way of thinking. Because the reason why we adopt things like critical theory is because we have seen, the generations now have seen that when we go back to the boomers, people who have grown up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s and such, you see that these generations didn't go far enough, far enough when you were battling racism, fascism, totalitarianism. You did not go far enough, and in fact, Racism, fascism, totalitarian, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. All around you, there are these things still thriving today. So that's post-postmodernistic thinking. And so post-postmodernistic art is something that I've briefly touched upon before in a previous sermon series, but 
It reflects the philosophy of the age. And when you see art now, it's like you make your own meaning. You could have a blank canvas in front of you, and what do you think it means? And the dude is paid tens of thousands of dollars for doing nothing. But it's about you make your own meaning. It's what you make of it. You see a painting, and you're like, wow, I think it's this. And they're like, yeah, absolutely right. Nothing to ever challenge you. So this kind of thinking is prevalent. And this kind of thinking has led us to think of things like time isn't even real. Time isn't real. Subjective. Nothing is truth. It's all subjective. So time isn't even real. You know why time is real? It's only real because of clocks. You know what we have to do? We have to get rid of all the clocks. If we didn't have clocks, there would be no such thing as time. So free yourself of the fascism of clocks, right? Obviously, that's somewhat of satire, but it's basically what we think about in all these areas. Free yourself of these measures and scales and things like that because, because of those things, we have this fascistic ideology thrust upon us, right? I believe, however, right now, we are no longer in a post-postmodern age. I believe we are in a new age. And some people have names for this age, like hyper-hybridism, where you put everything, mash everything together, or meta-modernism, where you're just beyond modernity. But I think we are beyond the place of where we can even react to modernity. Modernity is so far behind us, I don't think Gen Zers and plus even know what modernity is like, you know? And we, we do that in our social media posts, people who are boomers who are like, remember these rotary phones and Gen Zers would have no idea what a rotary phone is except if you played with it as a toy or someone told you that you had to actually wait, you would turn this dial and then you would have to wait, go and then that would be the number you're dialing. So if it's a nine, you have to wait a really long time but if you did it too soon, it wouldn't be a nine. You have no idea, right? It's fine, it's fine. And so we are in a new age, and some people have names, but I think we are in an age of decadence. And by decadence, I mean we are in an age of decline, of decaying of morals, dignity, faith, honor, disciplines across all studies. There are no skilled leadership that you see here. Like who's a leader that you could be like, everyone can rally around. There's no skilled leadership where let's say even a nation can rally around. Take a brief pause here and I wanna talk about today. Pastor Paul mentioned it. Today is Reformation Sunday. It's the week of Reformation Day and Reformation Day is October 31st. But October 31st is also known as another holiday within the last few hundred years, it hasn't become Reformation Day. It has changed over to a very more popular themed holiday. And in the last few decades, this holiday, Halloween, now is one of the top three commercial holidays in the United States. Halloween is one of the top three commercial holidays in the United States. That means people spend the most money on these Holidays. It's not just for candy, but for costumes. It's not just for costumes, but you have elaborate decorations. And if you're young, you have parties, etc. But these decorations are so elaborate, 
I do wonder when I see some of these decorations what we are celebrating. What are you celebrating when you celebrate Halloween? Because just in my town, if I take a walk with my child, with my daughter, down to the town center, all these decorations are strewn about. And there are all these decorations celebrating Halloween. And you, when you go down the hill in my town to the town center, you have a slew of Halloween, deco- Halloween decorations of severed body parts, of witches, of masked demons, and the like. And they're very creatively done, but that's exactly what it is. You just see body parts, like in places you see people hung on nooses, which is just weird, but that's my town. Anyway, but this is where we are. This is a, this is a reflection. Art is a reflection of what people, how people see the world, is it not? And so our thought leaders of today, what happened was they thought they knew better than their predecessors. Why would you listen to your parents? They were blankety-blank, right? Why would you listen to your grandparents? They're no good. They're terrible people. It's because of them we are in this situation, aren't we? But our thought leaders, current day, thought they knew better than the predecessors. And they believe that the people prior to us, they were the oppressors. The oppressors are the one that gave us the values that were passed down. It, were, it, were, it was those people that were in power that told us what was good and bad. And so what is the solution to that? Just flip them. Whatever you heard was good from the prior generations, our oppressors, you just need to flip them. So what is good is now bad. What is, what is bad is now good. Everything about sex, family, religion, government. In fact, all the institutions from the ground up must be flipped. And it must be burned. So whatever was bad before is good. Don't you see? Don't you see, guys? It's the oppressor that brainwashed you into thinking that this was good. Why? So that the oppressor could retain power. What is the result of that? So now fat is the new skinny, ugly is the new beautiful. Society has gone so far to say that if you call ugly, ugly, you are a blank phobe. You know, homo, trans, fat phobic, biphobic, ace phobic. The list just doesn't end there though. It's all white supremacy by transitive property. So you're all racist. You're racist because, you know, you called ugly, ugly. All because you didn't like some painting, you thought it was ugly, which it was, but it happened to be painted by an artist that was, and then you insert an intersectional label, the oppressed class. And so if you do that, then you must be the worst of the kind. You are not just a supporter of fascism. You are the fascist. You are the oppressor. So what happens then? And if, you, if all of this stuff is, you know, listen to our podcast. I, I kind of break it down there and didn't want to do it here too much. But what happens? What's the result? That's what I want to focus on. So when up is down and down is sideways and northeast is a circle, it's no wonder that we see statistics like this. Over 40% of Western women over 45 So over 40% of Western women over the age of 45 are on some form of antidepressants. That's an insane statistic. I remember sharing that with a sister here when I saw it, 
And these psychiatrists were like, this is bad. Not because necessarily they were on antidepressants, but because there was no weaning off. We, they had no system of weaning people off of antidepressants. But when you give people antidepressants, it's not, they don't think, oh, maybe we should examine ourselves in our society. Instead, we can't criticize yourself. That's not the way we think here in our new age. It's the other guy's fault. So postmodernism brought in what we know and what we have labeled and as second wave feminism and third wave and fourth wave. Women actually now have more rights, according to the feminist standards, not mine, according to the feminist standards, women now have more rights than ever before. And the question is, why are you less happy? Why are you so mad? And on the other side, men, all men know how to do in this generation is react. Because that's what postmodern thinking does. Either you are some kind of simp or you're red-pilled. Again, explain in the podcast. But even these red-pilled influencers, they want to bring society back where men open doors for women. By the way, that is a good thing. But why do these people think, these red-pillars that are reacting to postmodern thinking, why are these red-pillars think that opening doors for women is a good thing? It's because they claim that women going through a door that a man has opened means that that woman is submitting to a man. Submitting to a man is a good thing. That's what society needs to get back to. That's why you should open doors, and that's why women should go through doors that are open. And so if you think about that, think about that. These are the things that are coming up on your TikTok and Instagram Reels. These are the people that are getting massive traction and influence. Even the red pillars can only define themselves through the eyes of what? Feminist theory. It's just a reaction against it. They're they're still using their definitions and worldview. I I did mention, I'll take a quick sidebar here. I do think that opening doors is a good thing. I do think that acts of chivalry are a great thing. Why? Why? It's not because when you open a door, you're making a woman submit to a man. It's when men open doors or the like or do chivalrous acts. Doors were heavy back then. Doors were much heavier. Now we have automated doors. It's fine. No one's going to open the door when it's already open. It's like, look what I'm doing, you know, that kind of thing. But they didn't have automatic doors, but doors are incredibly heavy. They were very many, many pounds, sometimes over 70 pounds, and you had to push that door open. But the, the, the notion was, instead of using my strength as a man to dominate you, my strength is at your service. That's what chivalry was. And I don't think that principle should change. Strength should be at the service of others. It is a godly principle. We, don't, we can't see it that way anymore. Again, it's because we have gone beyond the post-postmodernistic age. In the end, all these things were supposed to make us happier. Men and women, more well-off, but it made us more desperate, more wanting, and more wretched. And I believe we must make our way back And I believe the Bible commands us to do so as well. We must make our way back to being happy. Chapter 2, why happiness and not contentment? 
Why do I use the word happiness and not contentment? Because contentment is the word that we read here. And I want to give you a little bit of context. Contextually, modern-day contentment and contentment in the ancient world, I believe, is also different. How? You have a greeting today. How are you doing? And if you say, I'm content as a response, I'm content. What does that mean? How are you doing? I'm content. That means you're doing okay. Things aren't that bad. Could be worse. They all mean the same thing. In contentment in the ancient world, which is different than today's world, where ideas from Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, right before the Bible was actually written, which led to the writings of the, Philipp, uh, the letter to the Philippians, it was modern-day Rome, which they really adopted Stoicism, by the way. It's much different in how we see contentment and how they saw contentment. Look at a quote by Plato. The first and greatest victory is to conquer yourself. To be conquered by yourself is of all things most shameful and vile. That's Plato. Compare that thought to now where you have to live your truth. Your feelings must be heard. And denying yourself is the greatest tragedy that you can face. But contentment in the ancient world was something to aspire to. It was the greatest thing if you could find contentment. Plato would even write, the greatest wealth is to live content with little. The greatest wealth is to live content with little. So this idea, the ancient world understood. I mean, to be fair, Plato is not perfect. He also wrote, love is a serious mental disease. I mean, but that's fine. Um, some of you are like, no, no, no. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. But I believe that to be content in the ancient world means to be happy in this world today. So Paul talks about contentment here, but just a few verses before, he lays out the command, a few verses before what we read here, he lays out the command to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, as if to say, look, I'm going to say it again so you get it. You need to always be happy. That's the command. Not just any kind of happiness. You need to be happy in the Lord. So first, you must be happy. Secondly, it's not just happy for anything. You can't be happy in sin and call that the right kind of happiness. But you need to be happy in the Lord. And thirdly, I'm going to put the emphasis on this again. You have to be happy. And that is the big question we face today, isn't it? Are you happy? Are you ecstatic in the Lord? If not, why not? And why do we think it's okay not to be happy? Meaning, we're not as alarmed. We're not alarmed as Christians. When Christians should be thinking, whoa, God commands me to be happy in Him, then why am I sulking? That would be a thing that a Christian would go through, is it not? Why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. But rather, we're like, oh well, it is what it is. I'm sad. I'm sulking. I'm sad. Deal with it. Chapter 3. Rejoicing in the Lord. 
And after Paul gives the command to rejoice in the Lord in verse 4, here in verse 10 that we read, he starts off with that same and exact phrase, I rejoiced in the Lord, and he adds another word. He adds the word mega, greatly. Apparently, the Philippian church heard of the need that Paul had, and they sent a gift via Epaphroditus in verse 18. So they gave Paul a gift, and he was responding. But he continues to the church of Philippi that the church of Philippi wanted to show love to Apostle Paul. There was no opportunity until he had a need, but Paul didn't want to focus on his need. He wanted to focus on their kindness, generosity, and giving. But before he does that, he gives us these verses that we read. He shares with the church how he was able to rejoice in the Lord greatly when they gave. Because it wasn't that he was discontent. He wasn't in a negative status before they were able to pull him over to the positive side. Their giving or not giving actually did not affect his ability to rejoice in the Lord. That's why he says, Paul, he says that he has learned in whatever situation how to be content. And this word for content, otarkes, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. There are similar words used, that's why it's translated here as contentment. And the other words that are similar to otar case is also sufficiency. So I think it's a good translation, contentment or content. I've learned how to be content. But that's not the word I want to focus. I want to focus on the word that is used twice. He says it in verse 11 and he says it in verse 12. It's the word learned. Paul learned how to be content in whatever situation and that word for learn, the first time we see learn, the Greek means to be taught. So the first time he uses it, it means he was taught this. That's what learned means. However, the second time is a different word entirely. And it means that a mystery is revealed. A secret is given. That's how it's translated as learn. I have learned the secret of. I have learned uh, the secret of is just all one word. And that's where we get this idea that this is a secret. How has Paul been able to rejoice in the Lord always and even greatly? He has learned the secret. Chapter 4, the secret to happiness. There is a secret that he learned, and it's not dependent on material or outward circumstance, meaning it can't take away the contentment he has. What's amazing about that statement is that it is clear that Paul is overjoyed at the giving of the Philippian church, and at the same time, he is saying that even if they didn't, that joy would not have been robbed from him. So you're thinking, which is it? Do the circumstances affect your joy, or doesn't it? And the answer, of course, is yes. Whatever material or outward situation Paul finds himself in, he is able to see the invisible and eternal aspects connected with the material. The Stoics were all about detachment, and I think some Christian thinkers also think it's about utterly attaching ourselves from the outside world so we can enjoy the spiritual. 
effectively what you are doing then, you are severing the spiritual tie to the material. And I think that is a mistake. What Paul is able to do is he's able to discover the will of God in every situation. Now, before you think, ah, it's Paul just surrendering himself, then he's just like, whatever, whatever is, is, whatever may be, you know, that kind of thing. Before you think that it's Paul just surrendering himself to the outside forces, and that he would just be tossed around, wherever the waves would go, he would be tossed and turned about. Before you think that, he says something in verse 12. And in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to ascend. He knows how to descend in life and how to ascend. That means he has the ability to control his circumstances to a great degree. Paul isn't some pushover. In fact, Paul was so brilliant that he was giving a defense in front of the king and governor Festus, and Festus yells out in the middle of Paul's defense. Paul is giving this this incredible defense of the faith, Festus yells out in chapter 26 of Acts, verse 24, you're insane. He says this, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're too brilliant. I can't refute you, but you're crazy. And this is what Paul responds. This is how he responds in verse 25. He says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, which is exactly what Paul writes in Philippians verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. Remember we said, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then in verse 5 he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so do you think Paul is the first one to understand this mystery? I think not. We just went over Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the very foundational characteristic that we are to understand about the secret to happiness is that it is a Christian virtue. Happiness is a Christian virtue, and it's Jesus who first showed us what that is by enduring the cross, despising the shame, because of joy. And that word for joy denotes ecstatic emotion. That word for joy means ecstatic emotion. It's extreme, excuse me, it's extreme happiness. When we think about it, it's like we should be joyful. In the Christian context, some people think it's like this monk-like stoicism. But I'm telling you, it's neither of those things. And even if you've heard that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again from the grave, how many times have you heard that it was for joy? Jesus is the reason we can have happiness now. He not only expressed it through the giving of his life for us, Through the giving of his life, he gave us his life. Literally, he gave us his life, meaning he gave us his joy. Jesus Christ gave us his happiness. You're like, what? Where do you come up with this stuff? In John 15, 11, he literally says that. I have told you this 
so that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Next week, we'll go over more of the mystery of happiness. But I want to move on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the review. I said a lot and I went through it pretty quickly. Let me just do a quick review. Contentment or Christian joy or happiness. These have characteristics that we must remember. In the very least, I have five that you can remember. Number one, happiness is more than a material thing. But it's not less than, meaning it's not absent material. But it is material connected with the spiritual, meaning what? Your inward and outward are matched when you are happy. The psalmist David knew exactly this when he wrote in Psalm 62, verse 1. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. A lot of times when we say the word salvation, we just think about the spiritual salvation. That's not how David thought. He was literally talking about the enemies that were surrounding him, the physical enemies surrounding him. So when he was saying, my inner spiritual self, my soul finds rest in God, my salvation is a holistic thing, both physical and spiritual my innermost being is being reflected on the outside, not the other way around. Some people's outsides might look pristine when you look at other people's lives like they must be happy. That's what a lot of people think. But their inside house is in tatters. The best-looking people in the world, think about who the best-looking people in the world are, sometimes have the worst-looking homes. Because happiness is when your insides match your outside and your outside matches your inside. Point number two is happiness is more than an emotion. It's not less than, meaning it's not absent emotion, but it is emotional, physical, intellectual, spiritual, everything. Happiness is felt and experienced in every part of your being. The third review point is the world and your circumstances cannot take away your happiness. In whatever circumstance Paul was in, He learned to be happy. And that's what the Bible is essentially teaching us too. That's what Jesus Christ meant, that my joy is in you. The Lord is teaching us how to be happy because he is the one giving us his happiness. And so the world or your circumstance can't take it away because who gave it to you? Review number four, point number four, is a key characteristic of happiness is that the person who is happy we see here, the person who is happy freely submits to God. He or she takes pleasure in doing the will of God. The heart, the mind, the body is ready and willing to commit to God and His commands. Right before John 15, 11, he talks about doing the will of God, which is obeying His commands. A happy person does that. Truly. Final review point. Number five is happiness is a grace from God. Happiness is a grace. It's a secret revealed. You can't be smart enough to figure it out. You can't be strong enough to take it for yourself. You can't work hard enough to receive it. But God gives it to those that he loves. And he gives it to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The final chapter, nothing lacking. Nothing lacking. And I want to finally hit 
Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is this quote I want to tell you about. I want to read for you. This quote says, The one who is happy lacks nothing. The one who is happy lacks nothing. It's a quote by a guy named Eugene Kim. It's not a big deal, but that's a quote by him. But the one who is happy lacks nothing. Christ supplies us with everything that we need. That's what it means. Christ supplies us with everything that we need. You need this donut. You go up to the counter to pay for it. And the price comes out to $2.56. You're like, $2.56? Yeah, inflation, bro. But in your pocket, how much money do you have? You have $2.56. You come the next day, and you, this time you decide, you know, I need a cup of coffee with my donut, and it comes out to $4.28. In your pocket, you have $4.28. All things means in all situations, Paul is able to do the things that he needs because it is Christ who supplies him. Paul isn't saying that he's able to do anything. He is saying that Christ is able to match any and every situation he faces. He is never left wanting. He is never short. But it doesn't mean that you won't go through trying times. Christians have faced astonishingly, incredibly difficult trials and persecutions throughout history. On this Reformation Sunday, let me remind you of one reformer. His name is William Tyndale. Tyndale was a brilliant scholar. He mastered many languages, but he was especially a master of the English language. They called him the Shakespeare of biblical translators. What he would do is he would take the Bible in Latin and he would translate it to English. And Tyndale's translation affected the whole course of English translations down to today. In fact, most of the King James Bible came from Tyndale's translations. But as he was translating, because he knew that in the Reformation, he knew that the Bible needed to be in the hands of the church, of Christians, not just clergy. The Bible needed to be in your hand. So he started translating the Bible, and they condemned him for heresy. Early in the month of October 1536, Tyndale was led out of the castle where he was prisoner, and he was brought to the southern gate of the town where he was there. And right when the sun had barely risen, he saw a bunch of people looking, and then there was a circle of stakes, meaning wood, where he would be executed. But not just wood, there was a large pillar with a rope hanging in the form of a cross as tall as a man. So what they would do is they would string up Tyndale with the rope so that he would die by strangulation. He would be hung, and then they would set his body on fire. But before he died, he said this one prayer. He said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And it echoed through the place. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. His feet were bound, iron chain fastened around his neck, 
there was a noose placed at his throat, and then he was martyred. They lit his body on fire, and then they moved on after the execution. But you see, God listened to Tyndale's prayer. Just three years later, King Henry VIII would license English Bibles to be placed in every parish church in England. In every condition, we can be confident, we can be happy, because what is set before us now, what is set before us? We, we talked about what was set before Jesus. What is set before us? When you just go down a few verses in Hebrews chapter 12 and 20, it says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The eternal circumstance we face is something that no earthly circumstance can take away because God is the one who promises it and God is the one who fulfills it. That's why we see happiness as a gift to us. God wants us to be happy. Why promise these things? But God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to have joy. And in happiness and joy, we worship God. Doesn't He truly deserve worship? He truly is an amazing God. And I can't wait to go over the other points with you on happiness, but I thought we could talk about the nature of happiness and how we got it. It was through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we sing about the salvation that we have in the Lord, it's everything physical, intellectual, spiritual, emotional. And that's what we have in Christ. So let us celebrate this reality by living the life God has commanded us to live. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. the life of your Son that has been given to us, that we could truly find happiness in this life and the life to come. In all our days, help us to, in that joy, in that happiness, worship you, reflect glory back to you, and give you due honor as King and Savior over our lives. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps there was a challenge in your life. Perhaps you are struggling with happiness. And it is the word of God now that exhorts you to not only seek happiness, but to be confident in the happiness that you have been given. And now reflect that truth in the living of your life. But first pray to the Lord for strength so that you may do his will in that joy. Let's pray.